0: Okay, Rich, you and I are back together again for a another topic discussion between the two of us. Oh, I want to give a quick update because the last time you and I were on the podcast, we talked about my citizenship test and I was training and studying. It's now post that time and I can give the good news that I have passed my citizenship exam. <laughs> anyway, let's continue now onto the, the topic hand about people freezing in the air and what do we do? How do we manage that? I I was thinking about this as I was like getting ready for this um, episode that so often do I hear people will say in conversations about programming or we go to a zip or something like that. And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I had uh, I talked a person off there and they were up there for an hour and they might say it as a positive, right? Like they'll say like, oh, yeah, it was so great. I think that there's so many anecdotes of those kind of situations. I think it's possibly an older style of programming where everyone went up or something, or maybe they haven't been taught. You know, I think there's far more acceptance in the field around choice, even though challenged by choice was a phrasing used for decades. I think nowadays there's a better awareness of choice. The hope is that we never get into those moments anymore, but I will say it happens. It will still happen. You can do all of the best intention and then someone inherently will get to a point where they'll uh, they'll just freeze. Let's look at first, how could we prevent, what's the preventative measures, the, re- the proactive stuff that we could do to attempt to ensure that we have less or zero people freezing in the air, including a section in that pre-flight check that involves the question, what are your goals? How are you feeling? How far do you want to go? What do you want from us? What level of support do you want? Right, those those things are critical. What other things are there?
1: Well, I'm going to be doing the training on Sunday, and the pamper pole is going to be in play. But you know, you start off in your comfort zone. We'd like to get you to stretch them, but at no point do we ever want to get have you get into your panic zone because that's when those kinds of freezing up things that happen, and more likely people can say, "Well, I never want to do that again," and that's something that we want to we're hoping we'd stay away from. So I, I usually get that in fairly early in the program or if it's a single day program, even in the day to have discussed that, that we all have different levels of challenge and to be supportive of whatever that challenge would be. And I think that's been a big difference as well.
0: I often say it's the Spider-Man quote of with great power comes great responsibility that we have the ability to impact our participants in so many positive ways, but we also have the, uh, the equal power of creating a negative outcome that can scar them emotionally for a long period of time. And uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if a number of people who have interacted with challenge courses have had potentially a negative response due to a lack of awareness of choice and And maybe there wasn't enough discussion early on about that, right? So there's a lot of pre-framing there. And then from a perspective of doing it with participants, having this discussion with participants, it creates greater empathy if there's an awareness that people are coming into the space with far less comfort or more comfort than
1: others. Absolutely. I also like to talk about a level of fear or anxiety that are part of the program. I recently did a training with PE teachers, and we're talking about, that level of stress when you are belaying somebody that is very different than in any other, I'm going to say, discipline within PE, unless you're going to be a lifeguard. But that there is a level of concern and anxiety for all of us as we do this kind of work, I think is a really important part of that. And one of the people in the in the program oh, thank you for sharing that. I was like, oh, I really should be spending a little bit more time talking about that level of fear or anxiety or, or responsibility, whatever you want to call it, when you have people at height. So it's, it's not something... You with a, a complete sense of comfort in your own self as a facilitator, regardless of whether you're a per- participant or not.
0: And, and that and that stuff comes with time. Yeah. There's no expectation after a four-day training or a five-day training that not only are their skills, they're feeling comfortable with their skills, but also feeling comfortable, general level of, of comfort with what they're about to do. You know, I'm about to do a one-day ballet training coming up in, a, in next week. Now, it's just for a climbing wall, so you might say just for a climbing wall, and you say that we're in air quotes, air quotes, but it's still all of the same skill sets if you had multiple elements or one element about you're going to have someone on a rope attached to you in the air. There's pressure there, and it's worth acknowledging it rather than ignoring it.
1: Exactly, and, I, and I, I share with people, I think that's one of the reasons why I love this work so much, because there is that kind of edge of if I can become complacent, that's not a good thing. And if I'm extremely fearful, that's not a good place as well. But there is some sort of happy medium that I feel I move back and forth through. That That's one of the reasons why I love doing this kind of work, too. Um, I'm going to make a plug here for AEE, Northeast Region AEE, because many years ago, it's got to be, I don't know how many years ago it was. But I, one of the great things about Northeast AEE is you have students or grad students who present. And I did go to a grad student. I can't remember her name, but she presented a workshop on fear because that was part of what she was looking at. And there's a great book that I read that I still refer to, and I, I do use. It's called *Intelligent Fear* by Michael Clarkson, and it was it was uh, written in 2008. And it really the book is is not based in challenge course fear. It's really about general fear or anxiety in general, more in the workplace. And uh, he really presents that idea that. Fear is a, a part of everyday life that I think is really been helpful, and there were things I took out of that. That this different strategies that periodically I do use before someone were to, were to begin to climb and to work on that. And one of them has to do with um, acknowledging that you you have a level of fear about what you're about to do. Then the next one is to practice breathing nice three deep breaths, whether you breathe in through your nose or out through your mouth. I mean, that experience in yoga. I like the other thought of taking things one step at a time. Um, you don't have to think about the whole climb; just go one one ladder, one rung of the ladder, one at a time, and kind of go from there. Also, like the idea of having a sense of humor in what you're doing. There is that thought of don't take yourself too seriously because nobody else will. I think that's the extreme version, but um, to be be realized that there is some humor in that, I think, is a good thing to do. Then number five, one that I really like is. If you see athletes, especially I'm going to say the NBA, but in general now, when regardless of the sport, when they do something well or they're ready to go, they get angry. So some people like to say use that anchor. If that's what your reaction is to want to climb, use that in a real positive way. And then last but not least, and I, I use this more at the high school level, but it applies at any level of what things have you already done that you can use here when you begin to climb. And it really would have to do with fear. Like I remember there was a student in one of my adventure classes at the high school. And he was a fabulous actor and had this run of a show. And he was just absolutely amazing. And I said, do you use anything? Do you get fearful before you perform? And I was like, yeah, I do. I said, well, how do you manage it? I ignore it. (laughs) But it worked for him. And he was more than willing to climb. So from that book, Intelligent Fear by Mark Clarkson, those are the five or six things that I try and highlight. And one level or another as we go through getting ready to experience anything.
0: There's so much to consider in the world of belaying. Like sometimes people think, oh, I'm just going to teach how to belay. But I think that once you get a handle over your technique and your skill, the next thing you really should be focusing on as a belayer is the coaching and the guidance and the framing and the tone of your voice. All of these things that you should be aware of as you begin to program. You'll start to find that more people are willing to climb once you start this process of accurately framing, not saying that the the goal of this activity is to get all the way up across and touch the tree or air horns at the top. All of those things should disappear from our mindset of programming because all it does is only ever rewards those who get to the end. If you set these goals, everyone who doesn't make it feels like they've failed, And that's not going to breed people who desire to want to go. Well, I I would try if I only had to climb a couple of the rungs of the ladder. But if you've set the role of like, oh, you have to go across, the implication that you've placed into the world is that that's the goal. That's the only way to do this activity. And so I love this like one step at a time because – That's all that needs to happen, right? Do whatever you feel is comfortable to you. One thing I'm very clear about is also asking what support people need. And and from others in the group, what do do we as a community, what can we do to support you in your goal of getting as far as whatever that might be? And, you know, sometimes people laugh when the person says, "I'd, I'd rather not anyone look. You know, can everyone close their eyes? And I'll say, no, 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 why are we laughing? We've asked them a question. They've given us the answer. The, the, the only response is to acknowledge it and say, sure. You know, I'll often say, I can't close my eyes because I do have to actually pay attention to you, but I can, of course, have everyone else turn their backs or close their eyes. If that will allow them to get further, why would I take that and say, no, 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 we can't do that because of the social... Norm of like oh cheering and support like some people don't want that and so I think it's really important to ask the question what do you want from us and I think it's a missed opportunity when people don't ask that Um, because that's what holds people back from wanting to climb sometimes because they're the social peer pressure of or the the pressure of people watching. Hey friends. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Sticker Mule. So if you have seen vertical playpen stickers, then you'll know the quality. Hopefully you have them. So if you go to StickerMule.com, that's S-T-I-C-K-E-R-M-U-L-E.com, then you can find their option to create your own custom stickers. They are super collaborative in their design process. They'll send you proofs. you can give comments back. You can pick the sizes and I can certainly vouch for the quality of the stickers. There's a new sticker design coming out soon for the podcast, so be sure to check them out. Once they're released, I will let you all know via here on the podcast and also on Instagram at Vertical Playpen and you'll be able to check out the stickers, and hopefully stick them wherever you would like. Hmm, That's a weird way of phrasing that. And also, we've been uh, maybe playing the game of how many times I've said stickers in this ad. I don't know what the count is. Surely it's more than 10. But once again, thanks to Sticky Mule and back to the episode.
1: Do you have any particular story from your experience in terms of someone freezing or just being at a level pushed way too far past their past their comfort zone they're they're far into their panic zone
0: um I haven't had too many recent experiences of people being it being in the moments of panic, and I'm not saying that that's because I'm any better. I think I'm more intentional, so I think that that can prevent those things from happening. But certainly, when I first started, I ha- I am the classic. Forty minutes, hour on a zip to the point where I actually took it as a a right of pride that I was being referred to as Doctor Phil. There's some issues potentially with that person, but with, but with the uh, the notion that like I could I was up there and I talked people down and and they were like oh well, thanks Doctor Phil you got me down. But there were many moments where I was bringing people to a space that they shouldn't have been in the first place. It's like thanking someone for solving a problem that shouldn't have existed in the first position It's like create a problem, and then someone gets stuck in that problem, and then you get them out of it, and they thank you for it. But really, they should be saying like, "Yeah, why did you even let me up here?" You know. The issue with the where this occurred for the most was I when I first started working in this field, I worked in on a static course that had a zip as an exit, and it didn't have. When this is poor program design, it didn't have any other ways to get people down. It just started. You had four static elements. Each one of those elements had varying difficulty levels, some a mixed bag, really. It was like really hard to easy, easy to hard. But once they got to the platform where I was, pretty much the only option for them was to go down or go back. I had to be good at coaching people in a calm manner to get them down. And that's why I saw it as a positive thing. I was like, oh, I'm good at being able to talk people down when they are really, really panicked. And it was a good practice. I will admit, like I did years of that, six hours at a time on a platform, hundreds of people a day. I got pretty good at being able to talk people down, right? I figured out what worked, what didn't, all of these different factors. I would say the things that worked was tone of language. Like that's where I really learned calmness. And I also learned the the power of giving choice and autonomy to the person, not forcing them into any situations. There were some moments, especially with younger audiences where I might give them a time limit. Um, and I sort of found that that kind of created opportunities for them to to step in their own choice rather than run out but the reality is what happens if they made it to that time limit there's not much i could really do and so i found just calmness of tone and just talking to them and you know trying to get them distracted i would often talk about stuff that was unrelated to the experience because when you draw on the experience then it's like you know i often used to say the phrase rip it off like a band-aid because the longer you're up here the more you talk yourself out of it and it does like that you used to get past the 20 minute mark. And I used to think, well, they're not getting down an aisle for another 20. You know, if I hadn't got them down in this period, I kind of had lost the moment. So, yeah, I've, I had loads of those kind of scenarios, but it was all programmatic failure. It wasn't, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't equate it necessarily to a failure of even myself because I was too new and I wouldn't have known any different. I didn't push them into that situation. I think the program as a whole did. There's no opt out clause Yeah, it was just the way the course was built.
1: I'm always surprised at the amount of people who, you know, especially, I'm going to say in the last five years since we've been in High Five, making sure I always frame that you can down climb. People are like, really? It's like, yes, you can down climb. And and that can be as equal a success as anything else. So, I mean, even giving those people more options like that.
0: I want to reiterate it because I do think that it's something that, still i see perpetuated in the industry just to clarify if someone can climb up some staples and they get to the climb i would see so often people say okay your options are you can either go across or you can just let go and we'll lower you but the option was never to down climb if someone can climb up they can climb down you just lower them like you belayed them and let them take one staple at a time and come on down ultimately if they were to slip off the climb they will swing away from the tree and they won't swing back to it because they're often on a pulley. So if people can climb up, they can certainly climb down. The other thing I just want to mention related to this, I think also might create moments of freezing is let's say they're on a traversing element. They've, They've climbed up, they've made it all the way to the end tree or the end pole. And then the facilitator or the belayer will say, okay, now I need you to turn around and take a few steps back towards the middle before I can lower you. I think that is a big area of potential freezing because it requires them to do something now much more complicated than just walking forwards or sideways, often turning around. They've done a really challenging activity and now you're asking them to do something harder just to get themselves down. And that's where I see a lot of people struggle to come down because they haven't framed how to come down. They haven't maybe demonstrated it and they're now really worried about moving away from the tree. So I just want to highlight something. You do not need to move people away from the tree to lower someone down down the assumption is that they're going to hit the tree but on a traversing element the gear is a, has a pulley up top and as soon as they sit down they'll roll away from the tree now if you want to avoid them having any pendulum because you're worried they're going to hit something when they swing is just pin the gear so you as the belayer move outside of the element further away um, and it will pin the gear and they will have less of a pendulum but try not to at- make the activity harder for them, especially when they've made it all the way to the end. Cause it's at that point, you're going to push them into their panic zone when they were already very, very stretched and made it all the way there. And then you add another layer once they get to the top. Yeah. Oh, by the way, now do something else. Turn around and go back. How hard is that? If they've just struggled.
1: That's why I always loved for many years well, in the school or the camp setting was we had a flying squirrel at both places and it, One place it was purple, so I put that in there. I love that as a beginning element, just so kids and people get the sense of what it's like to have their harness weighted and and on the end of a rope. Because if you have no experience, but you're just like you just mentioned, oh yeah, go back to the train and then come back out and whatever else, and you've never even had that sensation of what it's like to feel like with a weighted Mm -hmm. harness on. I mean, that's a whole level of anxiety that people uh, really have can have a real challenge with. I read something earlier um, this week that I didn't mention to you. It was an article about fear in general. And there's a thing that I, I really didn't know a whole lot about. And it may explain some of the reasons why some people, even though we're not sure about their background, why they freeze. And it's a thing called tonic immobility. And what that really is, is a series of psychologists looked at that as, late, as early as 1979. And it's like, why do people freeze in the military in really stressful, dangerous situations? Why do people freeze in general when there is significant trauma or violent crime? And their theory is that that is a natural defense mechanism like other animals have in the world about freezing and holding your position. And I'm not going to say you're going to play dead, but it's it's a real good example of why people will freeze or completely shut down. And if you were even to ask them about that, they will have no idea why that happened or why it occurred. And I don't think that happens a lot on a challenge course, but I think that would answer Some of the reasons why I, as a facilitator, should be a little bit more patient when people are really struggling up there, not that they're getting all the way to tonic mobility, but there is that potential to do that. I I thought that was really fascinating.
0: If you don't take the time to create a safe environment, you're going to lose time on the back end when you've got people stuck in the air and you're having to negotiate that. I think some pe- sometimes people get worried about not having enough time to get climbs in if they do a lot of connective-based activities, if they do a lot of framing, if they do activities in harnesses, if they're teaching stuff. And I understand all of those things, but you're going to lose time eventually if you rush people into it. Not only are you going to lose time, but you're going to have a negative impact on them, which will detract from the program in the first place. So spend the time to create a safe environment and don't thrust people into, the, into climbing just because you've got a concern around time, because you will have people stuck in the air and you will have to then negotiate that. Not everyone will get to climb because someone took a long time you're going to mess around with time either way. So you might as well use that time wisely and accurately in terms of setting your participants up for success and then your program up for success also.
1: You remind me of having to discuss how they create an order for climbs of who's going to climb and who's that going to be. And I've always liked the idea of have one or two people that are comfortable with climbing, familiar with, have climbed before, have them them in the beginning of the order themselves at the end of the order as well. So like, Two people have climbed a little bit or are comfortable with climbing and then try and put everybody else in the middle who are are thinking about it. Not that they have to climb, but they're in the middle of the order and they can make a better decision. But my experience over the years has been if you don't frame it in that way, then you're always going to have a couple of people at the end that kind of want to climb and get halfway and then boom, they freeze. So it just creates so much more anxiety. So I think just framing that climbing order can really make a difference as well for people.
0: Well, thank you for this topic. I'm sure people are listening to it and resonating deeply with it. If you have any strategies as you listen to this and maybe something we didn't cover or any strategies for helping people when they're freezing in the air, feel free to let me know. I'm happy to include them in a future episode or a future post on Instagram. You can send them to either email, podcast at podcast.highfiveadventure.org, or you can go to Instagram and direct message me there. Thank you once again, Rich.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playtime.
0: And then what about, thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast?
1: Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for
0: giving us a guy. <laughs> <laughs>